If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. This is a best of Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play a live interview I conducted with Maggie Haberman from the New York Times and David Farenthold from the Washington Post, which originally aired in September 2017, less than a year after Donald Trump was elected president. It was recorded at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin. As I mentioned, this is one of our favorite episodes from the past five years, so you're listening to a rerun. But Vox Media and New York Magazine will be bringing you new interviews on this feed later this year, so please stay subscribed. You can still hear me twice a week on my other podcast, Pivot, with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. Head over there for fresh, fun, smart conversations about tech and media and all of businesses' wins and fails and predictions for what comes next. Just search for Pivot in your podcast app of choice. But now, here's my interview with Maggie Haberman and David Farenthold from September 2017. We're here with Maggie Haberman of the New York Times and David Farenthold from the Washington Post, both of whom are incredible journalist, and I'm a bit of a fangirl, tiny, but not that much. Um, so I have a lot of tough questions for you, and we're going to talk about everything from the White House to how you guys started to where you think things are going uh, right now. So you're sitting up so straight, Maggie. It looks, I have to. You do. Okay. Gonna, All right. Your posture gonna, is excellent. I'm going to list if I don't. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, so let's begin. Let's start with you, Maggie. I, I love to, when I interview most people, I ask where where, how they got to where they got. So why don't each of you, first Maggie and then David, sort of briefly talk about how you got to the situation you find yourselves in right now. <laughs> sure. Um, do you mean starting from how I got into journalism? or do you Yes, mean... I don't want birth. Unless you have some moment in your youth that was pivotal. Or so some, many. Some prom we'll story. Um, I'm going to do that on, my, on, a, on a panel with my father later. Um, okay. the, uh, or later on this morning. I started at the New York Post uh, in 1996 as a copy kid. I couldn't get a job at a magazine, which is where I wanted to work. I was at Sarah Lawrence. And... Um, uh, no one would hire me, so I got a job for I think it was something like eight dollars an hour mm-hmm. um, as a as a clerk. And I remember the first day thinking like I, this is this is a very very strange place to work. And after about a day, just the rhythm of the newsroom completely uh, bit me. I loved it. it was, and this was it at it's at the New York Post. At the New York um, Post. Mm-hmm. And what did you like about the New York Post? The New York Post in the 1990s was a pretty amazing place to work because yeah. it had just been it had just been uh, taken over again by Rupert Murdoch, uh, who did and does love the paper. I mean, for for all of the criticisms of him, uh, he could still walk into the newsroom and lay the paper out, which most newspaper publishers and owners these days can't do. Um, and it was just it it was completely it was like you were plugging your fingers into some kind of matrix of the city. It was just constantly alive. Yeah, and. Uh, I went from there. I covered City Hall. I covered um, Rudy Giuliani's final term. I covered Mike Bloomberg's campaign, which felt similar to me to this year because I was um, I was very angry when I was assigned to cover Bloomberg's campaign because he was the loser who had no chance of winning. He was the right. laugher candidate, and then he became the mayor. Um, in I ended up at the Daily News, back at the Post, went to Politico. I covered in 2011 Donald Trump's uh, flirtation with running for president. And I had dealt with him at the Post because um, at the tabloids, he was just omnipresent. And he was constantly calling page six, the gossip page, 
um, very often as a, as a source close to Trump. Um, yeah. And, uh, Sources close to the situation. So close to the situation, he had very similar hair to yes. Donald Trump. Or you'd say, and, one time I did, sources close to the situation, if they were any closer, they'd be on the other side there of you them. Go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and so in 2015, I joined the Times for a sort of um, unclear assignment. Uh, I just was joining the team. I had been covering Clinton. Can, for can, I, can years, I stop you? Sure. You were at Politico, though. I was. I and was you, that, that's considered a blog or something like Recode or something like that. Why did you go there from the Daily News? Well, I went there actually from the Post. Um, I went back to the. I was not happy at the Daily News. Uh, I went back to the Post. That, that it just was a better fit for me. And I went to Politico from the Post because. It was a different job. It was national, and the Post had, you know, the tabloids in New York City have a have an uncertain future. Now they have had this uncertain future for a very long time, um, and they are doing better than newspapers in some other major cities, uh, mm-hmm. just because of the unique uh, nature of the New York City media market. But it was just a chance to make a jump, and so I made the jump. And I also didn't really have a clear role there, but I ended up covering 2012 with my colleague Alex Burns, who's now at the Times with me, who is one of my closest collaborators. Um, but in 2015, when I went to the Times, Alex went to the Times the same year, uh, he was on Metro. It wasn't really clear what I was going to be doing. And I was looking for a lane. So I picked up Trump because nobody seemed very interested in right. Trump. And right. I knew him and I knew his people. And How well was, did you know him? You knew him from just... I mean, I, you know, I knew him from covering New York City. I knew him for, And I knew him from 2011, which is where I really developed a relationship with him. Um, and where I discovered, you know, the sort of like, number one rule about him is that in his brain, two things are true. No one speaks for him except him, even if he actually has a spokesman who's calling you saying I'm his spokesperson. And he believes that um, facts can be changed so that they are something other than maybe what you thought they were a day ago. So the for instance to that was that I did this interview with Roger Stone in 2011, who's Trump's longest serving inside, outside advisor. He has always yeah. had one foot, you know, sort of on the outside. I think recognizing, frankly, you survive longer that way with Trump. But I did this whole interview with him, and it was all about Trump. It was all about how Trump would run. It really wasn't about Roger. And Trump called me the next day and said, Roger Stone doesn't speak for me. And Stone was in all the meetings at this point. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I knew this directly. And it was, it was an education, and it was an education I shouldn't have needed, but as with a lot of this, you know, until you experience it directly, you don't really understand how right. unusual it is. Anyway, so when I thought what was going to happen was that Clinton was going to win, um, I wasn't certain of it. I was reminded uh, by a friend that I had said at a barbecue where I had bumped into her in May of 2016 that I thought Trump might win, um, just based on how things were going at that point. But I still thought Clinton was the likely winner. I would go back and do whatever. I wasn't going to cover the White House, um, and I would see my children. And um, that is not what happened. That is not so what happened. That's how All right. I ended up here. <laughs> the, but it's interesting. You did start off in a, in a, in a copy desk. I started off in the mail room at the Washington Post. Oh, I didn't know uh, did you really? Yes, I did. I delivered mail for people who later worked for me, which was always an interesting. <laughs> um, what was interesting about it is really big jerks. Are mean to copy people or, mm-hmm. or, or lesser people, and very talented people are not. Like, it was really vast, except for one, and I'm not going to name him, but you can guess. <laughs> we'll, think, um, we'll think about it. So, Dave, let's talk about your background. You had started where? The Post. I, I started at the Post as an intern in 2000, right after I got out of college. I and, was an intern, too. Yeah, and basically came in at just the right time. We were making money hand over fist from the print paper back then, and I've stayed through all the sort of tumult. Uh, I was always sort of too young and cheap to get rid of when everybody else was getting buyouts, and mm-hmm. it lasted long enough to have seen the light on the other side. And you had, you had come in for, just from college, on the college? Mm, the college summer and where did you start at the Post? I started on uh, night cops. So I, yeah. I worked for the Metro desk, and I'd come in at 7 p.m. and work till 2 a.m. and basically just cover homicides, car accidents, things like that. And then, as an intern, you did mm-hmm. that also. And then you were hired from the intern program yeah. into the metro section. So then I was a two-year intern doing the same thing. And uh, the only way I got off Night Cops, uh, was, you know, it's a job, you guys probably know this. I, I the, did it. The editors that decide to take you off Night Cops work during the day and don't yes. ever see you, except yes. if you screw up. If you do a good job, they don't really pay attention to you. <laughs> uh, and so the only way I was able to get off Night Cops was just luck that there was someone at the paper that they wanted to quit, and they wanted to give her the worst job at the newspaper so she would quit, and that was my job. So they had to okay. get me out of it. Uh, <laughs> so that's how I ended up working during the, during the day. I could still be there at night if that stroke of good luck and bad luck had not happened. Yeah, and so you, you, so you moved where from there, inside the Post? Uh, so I covered uh, the 
police during the day, like the police chief, and then I've done all kinds of things. The environment, I was the New England bureau chief for a year, and I've been on politics since about 2010. 2010. So what moved you to politics? I was covering the environment and had for a long time and felt like um, I had, in 2010, there had been a giant coal mine explosion in West Virginia that I'd spent a lot of time covering and there had been the uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill that I'd spent a lot of time on. And it felt like the environment beat was kind of at the middle of everything that year in a way that it would not be again. Um, and so they offered me a chance to go cover politics. And at the time, the post was sort of shrinking. We were, we were unsure about our future, but it seemed like the thing that we were going to do the last thing we were going to do uh, was politics. And so if you wanted a future at the Post, if you wanted to be the place where we thought was the middle of our, our mandate, that was politics. So I, th- I said yes and moved over. I first covered Congress and then um, covered like government waste, other presidential campaigns, all kinds of things within politics. And how did you move into what you're doing? So, Because what you're doing is really wonkish, really. <laughs> it's, a, it's more into the data journalism, the idea that you actually do... It's not quite what Maggie does in the same way, but... Well, you, I mean, it, it kind of was by accident. I had done these stories about government waste. It's been a right. couple of years writing about government waste, and so much of that... Like, was, say, price at HHS, for example. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I, I never, mention that? I'm going to ask obvious. about that later. Okay. And the Politico stories about price at HHS have been amazing, but things like... Uh, I wrote a long story about the National Raisin Reserve, um, which you didn't know we had a national, we do have a national strategic raisin reserve. Okay. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you need ju- raisins. Raisins, yeah. yeah. It's, okay. It was an amazing story. Yeah. Uh, That's pretty cool. Th- then uh, like a giant underground cavern under Pennsylvania where the government keeps 28,000 file cabinets full of personnel records. Mm-hmm. Um, things where I'm writing about an agency doing something stupid and they're hostile to me and don't want to help me. And so I got practice sort of building a, building a story around the outside. So like mm-hmm. the underground mine of Pennsylvania, the, the people who run that wasteful thing don't want to talk about it, don't want right. to let me in. Right. So then I had to go find all the people who used to work there and their friends, build the story without the cooperation and then come back to the agency and say, look, I know everything about your weird mind. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to write about it. You can be in the story or out of the story. Right. So that actually turned out to be helpful covering Trump because his, his reaction, a lot of these things was to say, no, I won't tell you. you know, the only person who knows the facts about me is me. Mm-hmm. And if I don't want to cooperate, then I won't, you're screwed. Right. Uh, and for me, it was a, that was good preparation to say, in, you know, there is a way to build, to tell the truth about you without you. It's just a lot more work. Mm-hmm. So I, I covered the presidential campaign in 2015 but in 2015, I really wanted to cover candidates you could get close to, people you could really see up close. I didn't want to be in a big, you know, like covering Hillary Clinton where there's a, you know, crowd of 200 reporters. Right. Which means I basically, I covered losers. I covered like Bobby Jindal, mm-hmm. uh, Rick Perry. I, Rick Perry actually flew to, wrote a profile about him. I flew to Missouri to see him give a speech and he dropped out in the middle of the speech that I saw him. When oh, he okay. Goes, <laughs> So, <laughs> Rick Santorum, I saw him. Did you know around. this or just like, oh, shit? Yeah, I know. In the middle of the speech, I'm like <laughs> writing it down, trying to think about what this means for his political future. And then people, <laughs> other reporters have been given the advanced copy of the yeah. speech and are scrolling down. And you can, you can hear them be like, oh, no, he's dropping out. <laughs> On page seven, he drops out. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, that was that was. You didn't scroll down. Right? No, no, I did not scroll down. I was I was really looking at him, trying to understand this. Doing real people. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Um, I, Rick Santorum. I, I toured uh, places in Iowa with Rick Santorum last year, where he'd go to meet a crowd of like two people. Yeah. One of whom didn't know he was coming and was just there eating ice cream when Rick Santorum <laughs> showed up. Uh, so all my candidates had, were basically kaput by yeah. the time that Iowa caucuses came around. Everybody had profiled was gone. Um, right. And so they said, well, all right, we have Trump reporters. What did you le- I'm just curious what you learned from that. From- well, uh, two lessons. One, if you're going to write a profile, this is particularly a Bobby Jindal lesson. If you're going to write a profile of someone, a political candidate, you should look beforehand at the polling to see where that person is. Mm-hmm. And if next to their name in the polls is like not even a number, just like an asterisk or like right. NA, you okay. should not write a profile of that person. All right. Okay. Um, but I did, I, I like those stories in that you were trying to find different ways of telling a political profile story. And trying to find meaning in these people. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, so you get to know them and like try to communicate that to people, but also to try to find a candidate that people think they're bored by or not interested in. One of my favorite stories about that was Mike Huckabee, right? Mike Huckabee briefly had a time running as a 2016 candidate. How do you profile Mike Huckabee? Well, he is amusing, if not appalling, but go ahead, move on. So we just, I read all of his books and read a lot of interviews, and the whole profile was just a list of things that Mike Huckabee had condemned as immoral over his life. Mm-hmm. It was like 180 things. That's and all, it, wow. You, you could see over his life, I see, remember he was the skinny governor for a while, sort of a progressive 
uh, Republican governor of Arkansas, and then he was like fat and conservative again. And right. You could, the his weight people, was when he, his political right. leanings were depending on his weight. Okay. Right. And the things, right. the things that he condemned changed over time. Like there was a time when he was condemning grits and gravy. Grits and gravy is bad. You got to eat vegetables. You know, America should be healthy. Right. And then once he became this sort of like, screw you, Michelle Obama, I'm going to eat grits and gravy candidate. Right. Three years later, he was like, I hate people who tell me I can't eat grits and gravy. Right, right. Uh, right. So just like trying to find a way to tell a story of Mike Huckabee just in the timeline of things that he was condemning. Um, that, so, but those people, while well, great experiences covering them, nobody read those stories. And right. so I got basically put on the Trump story as a one-day thing. In February, on caucus day, they said, look, here's a guy, uh, Donald Trump, he's been on Married three times, he's been on the cover of Playboy twice, he's about to win Mike Huckabee's Iowa, we thought. He in the end, he didn't win. Um, but or Rick Santorum's Iowa. Go there with him on caucus day and just sort of watch what he does, how he interacts with voters. And that's when I saw him do this weird thing where he gave a big check to uh, this. He stopped his rally and gave a big check from his foundation to was somebody. Was it a big, one of those big checks? It was too? literally a it was large check. It was like a golf tournament sized check. Right. Right. So you could see it from the back of the room. And it made me say, like, well, what the heck is he doing? Like, can you give away checks from your foundation in the middle of a political event? No. Actually, no, you can't. Um, but also, <laughs> where's the rest of the money? You know, he said he'd raise $6 million. I saw him give away a little bit of it. I'll just call the Trump campaign and say, hey, Where's, you know, he raised $6 million for veterans. Who'd he give the rest of it to? And I thought that would be like a two or three day story. Write that, move on to something else. And it said it was like, because they wouldn't tell me it became something that lasted for months and months and months. We're listening to my September 2017 interview with Maggie Haberman and David Farenhold, recorded live at the Texas Tribune Festival. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back after this. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. So essentially, both of you just uh, fell into this, like, by accident, and yeah. because yeah. you were losers, essentially. We were. <laughs> yep. We were. Like, pretty much. It's true. So, Thanks for having us. No problem. <laughs> um, now you're the most important reporters in the world, for now. Um, so you essentially fell into this. When, was, when did the penny drop that maybe you were onto something here? Now, let's start with you, Maggie. You, you've been covering this. I, I'm in huge admiration because you cover it doggedly, like a beat report. It's like a, you're like a true beat reporter in terms of how much you covered. At one point, you had like nine bylines in the, in, in the New York Times one evening, and I was like, how does she do that? What is going on? But you, how do you look at how you cover it when it started to become clear that this might be something? Well, so, to, uh, so I take that as two separate questions. I mean, one is in terms of when it became clear that this might be something, um, it was after the Paris terrorist attacks in 2015 in November um, when his numbers didn't dip. He, he said all kinds of intemperate things. That was actually when he made his big Muslim ban pitch. Mm -hmm. um, whenever he focuses on DACA or the border wall, and the border wall is a little different, but uh, the, the big belief among some of his critics is that those are the issues that were real drivers in the primary campaign. Actually, his, his Muslim attacks were the ones that were real drivers. I mean, because if you look at the arc of this election, and I think about this a lot, especially because one of the things that I covered in New York City at the Post and then at the Daily News was the 9-11 attacks, because I was mm -hmm. down there, and then rebuilding for three years. So 
if you look at the arc of this election, it has a lot of connectivity to what happened that day and then the mm-hmm. aftermath and the country going a little crazy um, afterwards. But it was, it was in, in that month when nothing changed. I mean, his ceiling, I mean, his floor rather was so hard um, and, and nothing was changing in the primary. There were 17 candidates almost the entire time. I think that there were 16 eventually. I guess it was Perry who dropped out first, right? Right. Um, so then there were 16, but the game theory that was supposed to take place where this one was going to get this person's 3% and then this was going to happen, none of that ever happened. So he was just able to kind of keep going. And I did this story with uh, my colleague Tom Kaplan about evangelical, self-described evangelical voters who were backing Trump. The reasons that they gave, we spoke to a bunch of people who had been part of a Times poll who described themselves as evangelicals, and the reasons that a lot of them gave for why they were with Trump were so clear that a lot of issues that we think of as typical drivers, especially in a Republican primary, social issues, I mean, realistically, these had not been big drivers for the last two cycles, but people were so pissed off about Obamacare. I mean, the thing I kept hearing over and over again every time I called someone was, my son's premiums went up to $1,400 a month. He can't afford this. He's so Obamacare. Because of the Affordable Care Act. And, um, you know, or things just have to change and I hate Hillary. And these were basically the, the two reasons. So it was clear that something was going on. And then your, your question about covering it as a beat reporter, I was trained um, by this guy, Greg Birnbaum, who is now at NBC. He was my editor. Uh, for a really long time. He was my editor at The Post, and then he was my editor again at Politico. And his whole thing is just don't get beat, don't get beat, don't get beat. And so, like, I literally look at everything as, like, tiny little increments. And I do have this problem sometimes where I have to trouble stepping back and seeing how everything gets into a bigger picture because I cover everything. Like, like I am on, like, some kind of cops and crime beat where it's like Donald Trump said today, police said. Um, (laughs) Right. But that is basically my approach because he also, he says so much that like, and especially in the campaign, that was one of his tricks was that he would say seven different things and people would either hear what they wanted to hear or nothing specifically would stick. Whereas with Hillary Clinton, you know, the emails were basically like the one thing that everybody remembered or would hear. That is still how I cover him, but it's much harder to do that with a White House beat. It's just different. Right, and so you do it, the reason I get to it is eventually to talk about the incrementalism of how it's covered, so it never, you never see the larger picture that everyone gets on that, uh, that wheel, essentially. That's, well, that's part of why my, my, my frequent collaborator, Glenn Thrush, is a lot um, better at that than I am, so he often pulls me off the wheel and you know, parks me nicely on a piece of newspaper and lets me roam around and nibble on some food. <laughs> I do force myself to take breaks and sit back and kind of look at the pattern of what I'm, what I'm looking at, or look back and say, how does this relate to something he did in the campaign? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even something simple, like I did a story a couple weeks ago about his opioids commission and their first report. They did this report and he announced a national emergency but not really because the government hasn't actually declared a national emergency on this. And so, but that just disappeared under a wave of, you know, North Korea and, you know, a million other tweets. Well, well, I want to get to that idea of the exhaustion level, that that you must be exhausted and we're all exhausted because of you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. You uh, could all be sleeping, though. Yeah. Um, so, but you have had a different approach. You, you focused in on Sherilyn. You have a book about this now. Wh- why did you then focus so intently on this? What did you think it meant? Well, I, first of all, I could focus... Explain it, it, it. Explain it. He just doesn't give what he says he gives, right? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, we, the, the short version of what happened with his charity was that, of his veterans' promise, was it started out him saying I was gonna, he, was, he had gotten $6 million for veterans, of which $1 million was his own money, uh, and he was going to give it away. And I just wanted to find out if he'd done it. And mm-hmm. he had, basically. Uh, it, it took me forever to figure that out. Finally, uh, in May, I spent all this time sort of searching for evidence that anybody had gotten the money that Trump said he was going to give to veterans, specifically. And then Corey Lewandowski, who was Trump's campaign manager, now a Harvard fellow, uh, mm-hmm. called and said, uh, I can tell you for sure Donald Trump has given away his $1 million to veterans, but I can't tell you um, who got it or when or in what amount. It's all secret. It's all totally secret. And that's, you can't take that for an answer. I mean, we wrote a story saying that he right. said that. But you can't, tr- I mean, you can't trust anybody saying that. Uh, okay. So I went looking for proof, basically, that Trump had given this money away. And I was on Twitter basically saying, hey, has anybody gotten even $1 of this million dollars Trump says he just gave out of his own pocket to veterans? And I spent all day searching for it. 
couldn't find any evidence of it. At the end, thought the problem was me. Like, right. This was a stupid <laughs> which I think way reporters do. Which I think reporters yes, do a lot. True. They assume it's not there. One of my problems as a reporter is that I'm basically an optimist. Mm-hmm. I basically, if people say they're going to do something, this is in spite of so many years of covering politics. Mm-hmm. If people say they're going to do something, I believe them. That is right. shocking. I know. Shocking. It's a handicap, and ah. it means that I'm constantly being surprised yeah. by things. Maybe that's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so in this case, like, I thought, okay, well, maybe you know, probably to give this money away, and I've spent a day searching for it, and I haven't found it. And what it turned out, so I had been putting at real Donald Trump and all of the, my tweets looking for this money in the hopes right. that he would see it. Uh, and the reason I couldn't find it was because it didn't exist. He right. had not given the money. Uh, only after I made this big show of looking for it did Trump actually Which give the you money did. Away. You used Twitter to do that. Yeah. And you, you, you took pictures of your notes. You did all kinds of things, which I thought was rather clever. It's a really inter- It's yeah. also you're sort of giving away the story. That was, well, that was sort of the beginning of it. When that worked, right? Trump saw what I was doing and then actually gave the money away. Uh-huh. Um, that was two things. One, uh, we, the editors realized that this was interesting. Like, there was this big, he gave this big press conference at Trump Tower where he excoriated the media, media for like, making him live up to this promise he'd given on television. And, all, and so the editors said, wow, like, if he's willing to do that, you know, trying to weasel out of a commitment to veterans, you know, our most revered group in our society, and then under the brightest spotlight we have, which is a presidential campaign, what was he doing before? You know, what was he, he, was he promising money to charity before and not giving it? So they said, okay, make that, you know, sort of a focus. And, it, you know, it, it, one of the things that's so important about Trump covering him, and I know Maggie knows this too, is that he spends so much time constructing a facade yes. about who he is and what he does. Correct. And what matters to him, and then makes it so hard to figure out yes. the substance of what he lives, you know, to, to what he's actually doing. And so in this case, Trump had for many years understood that to play the role of like Bruce Wayne, basically like millionaire playboy kind mm-hmm. of figure, you had to be uh, generous and generous in kind of extravagant ways. And so he'd been promising to give money to all these different people. Uh, but in private, he had been doing as much as he could to avoid giving anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't feel the moral yep. compunction that he, that he showed the world that he felt he didn't really feel. So that, that, was a, that was something, an interesting line of coverage. I thought an important thing to say about him. But I could only do that because we had people, other people at the Post who were doing what Maggie was doing, and, you know, following Trump around, writing stories about the campaign. I, mean, mm-hmm. I could only do it because there was, we had a big enough staff to do everything. And what did you think that represented? And Maggie, mm-hmm. your thoughts on this. What do you think it represented of him doing that? Because you picked one thing, which I think is very indicative of everything else, pretty much. Yeah. I, I, to me, it was really... He clearly had thought it was important, an important thing to say about himself, that he was generous, that he was going to give money to people. Because he would often say, like at Howard Stern, oh yeah, Celebrity Apprentice, yeah, I'm going to give all the money for charity. I think there, there's two sides of Trump's character, at least his pre-presidential character. One was... I'm the richest man you could possibly imagine. I live the life of Scrooge McDuck, basically. I have so much more money than you could, than I, like the first I line. swim in it. Yeah, the first line of The Art of the Deal in 1987 was, I have so much money, I don't need any more, right? Mm-hmm. I've, I'm so rich that I couldn't use any more money. That's one side of the personality, the image. The other side was, I need your money. Give me money for Trump stakes, Trump water, Trump university. He was always hustling to get you to give him your money. Mm-hmm. And so how do you square that? A guy who want, doesn't need more money but is like desperate to get you to send him cash. The way he would always do it was charity. Well, it's, this is for charity. Trump university, it's all for charity. You know, that's, it's not for me because I have more money than I could ever need. It, it was important to me to see, you know, he wanted people to believe that about him so much what was he doing in private to live up to it? You know, in the privacy of his own home, in the quiet of his own mind, what did, this, did other people really matter to him? And if so, how? You know, what causes had he chosen? And it, it seemed like the end of result of all of it was the cause was himself. You know, he did have a charity, the Donald J. Trump Foundation, which gave some money away, but almost always, always to people himself. that... Yeah, people that had invited him to a party, had, had given him an award, places where it, it was socially unacceptable in this particular interaction not to have some kind of charity, charitable donation. And so this was his way of meeting that minimum. But there's no greater cause. The cause was always so, him. So, May, what did you... I mean, was this just... Because this seems to be the pattern, correct, on everything? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that... I agree completely with your point that... Uh, what David did was pick, and we all commented on this at the Times, and I give David an enormous credit for this because he picked a lane right. and he just focused on right. that lane as opposed to the rest of us who were constantly chasing the golf ball across the course. Which I think is the point. It is, is right. I mean, especially with Trump, because so much of it is whacking a golf, club intention, a, a golf ball intentionally across the field to get you to chase it. When I was listening to David talk, I was thinking about 
this is where in some ways those of us who had covered Trump for a really long time were actually at a disadvantage mm -hmm. um, in this campaign because the five borough view in New York City of Trump is so unbelievably different than the national view of Trump. The national view of Trump was formed over 14 years of The Apprentice. Mm -hmm. And so I was amazed when I would go to Iowa and people would describe him as if he was like Thomas Edison. They'd be like, you know what, he's this innovator, he formed this huge business, he's decisive, he makes decisions, and it's like he fired Gary Busey, and that's what they're talking about. <laughs> right. um, in New York City, he was known as a hustler. He was known as somebody who left other people with the bills, uh, who didn't pay his bills. He was known as somebody who was constantly promising to give money, but it was always living on other people's money. He has this friend, um, Stuart Rohr, who actually was very infrequently talked about in this campaign, I think by his own design. But Rohr is this party boy who was a, a page six fixture who was constantly funding Trump's, um, you know, fun or charities, or Trump would promise a donation to something and it was actually Rar who would give it. And I had a friend um, in New York politics who called me in around October and, of 2015 and was like, you need to sort of be focusing on this. And we never really did, and we never really did anywhere near as well as David did. Um, and with the sort of part, of part of what, the brilliance of what David did is that with Trump, it's not really enough to just write it once or twice. You need to write it over and over and over and over again because this tidal wave of other stuff he puts out takes over. With Trump, to David's point about the, the causes himself, you know, this is a casino owner where the house always wins, right? So he always wins one way or the other um, in his mind and it doesn't really matter what happens to the other person. The whole reason that I, his folks came to me in, May of 2015 and said, Trump is going to declare on June uh, 16th and we want you to write it. And I said, no. And they said, why? And I said, because I'm not doing this again. I did this in 2011 and he didn't run and I'm not playing this game where he looks for free publicity again. He's going to actually have to run for me to do this. And I never thought he would because I didn't think he would file a financial disclosure form. Mm -hmm. um, and he didn't, but go ahead. No, he did. Yeah, he, he did, release. but he did. not. He didn't release this. Well, but we, we have no way of knowing right. whether that's real and we haven't seen his tax returns which he repeatedly promised he would release, but then they were under audit and this and that. It is, as David said, it is always a mirage. But I was so used to, there was a side that was sort of like, well, everybody knows this. Actually, everybody doesn't know this. And that, I would say, was one of my biggest um, failings during the campaign. So let's talk about now, covering things now. Now, David, you're going to continue, have you continued with the charitable giving because you, you feel like this is the... <laughs> Well, I don't know, the, the rosebud of the situation, Yes, I, I don't know what else to think about it. It's my gimmick now. I have to stick with it. Yeah, okay. Uh, right. But also, I'm doing a lot of coverage of the Trump business, uh, business Trump organization, right. just because it's a lot of the same sort of like techniques are useful in covering that, um, and also because I think that's an undercovered source of influence uh, on Trump and um, totally like a way is it for, you know sort of from Trump's perspective positive and negative like there's a lot of people who are giving him business because he's the president and a lot of people are taking away business from him because he's the president but uh, not just that the actual business that had existed for 20 years right, I totally. think very few reporters uh, have delved as yeah. as deeply as they possibly could well the, to me the really interesting thing now is that the people that Trump built his business on are the inverse America to the people that he ran on, right? Mm -hmm. he, he ran on rural America, exurbs, you know, the middle of the country, uh, Rust Belt. His businesses, his, his hotels and golf clubs at least, are in blue America, right on the coast, wealthy enclaves. A lot of them, people very, very wealthy are, are members, and a lot of them are very liberal. And so he is now trying to sort of appeal to both those constituencies at once. I mean, one constituency is locked into membership fees in some cases, but like he's running to, to stoke his base, he ends up alienating the people who were his customer base for a long time. And I'm really interested in how those two sort of sides of his, you know, appeal uh, interact with each other and whether, you know, in the end, which one matters to him more. And the businesses themselves? The businesses, I mean, golf clubs, I've learned a lot about Palm Beach uh, and mm -hmm. golf clubs and hotels uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, they make it, the Trump people make it extremely hard to figure out what's going on with their businesses. So we've done things like try to figure out all the people, the charities who rented out ballrooms and, and hotel rooms, all the NBA teams that stay at his hotels, people that pay him a lot of money and have other choices. Because you think about his businesses, none of it's really necessary, right? Mm -hmm. He's not like he's selling auto parts, right? Mm -hmm. He's selling things that you could 
go, you know, you could find another, ho- it's easy to replace or it's easy to just go without. You don't really need a golf club membership. And so it's those businesses, it makes it easy for customers to walk away and they may be doing that now. I think that's a really interesting part of the, what's changing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's for new people to come and try to, you know, all the new people who come to the Trump Hotel are doing it often because they want something from his presidency. And now under scrutiny, obviously, are some of his businesses international with Russia particularly. Um, is that going to be a big focus? I mean, that's, ob- that's clearly a focus of the Mueller investigation. Yes, it's not it my shouldn't. focus really, but it's the focus of other people at the Post. We're really interested in the, the Trump Tower deal in Moscow or the proposal for a Trump Tower in Moscow. The New Yorker had that great story about Azerbaijan that yeah. t- ties to the Iranians through Azerbaijan. That's right. That stuff is really uh, an important part of understanding his presidency. It's just not me particularly that does that. So, May, let's talk about the exhaustion level. Because I think one of the things you talked about, you, he throws a golf ball and you all chase it. He says something outrageous. I mean, it, one, during one week, I'd forgotten the outrageous thing they said sure. Monday. And I feel sometimes like I can't take a shower because <laughs> if I get in the sh- oh my God, what did he just do? And so it does create, we're kind of, reporters are kind of on the on the wheel of him, of, that he creates and, and does that. How, do, how is that, is that changed? Or because it, it seems to never end. It's actually gotten a little better. Look, I mean, he, he creates chaos and then he responds to the chaos that he creates. And then we have to respond, you know, half, not have to, but we end up covering both the creation and the response that he does. It's all some self-contained thing. It is all of a piece. Everything David's saying and everything I'm talking about is all about somebody creating his own world, um, mm-hmm. which you really can't do when you are the president because there are just objective facts um, and everything cannot be wag the dog. Um, and so I think that one of the challenges for us is figuring out how to explain to people, and I was thinking about this again as David was talking, how to show people that the reality is different than what they are hearing and maybe even seeing. Um, and I think that in our coverage, I don't mean the Times, I mean just the broad spectrum of coverage, I think there is way too much telling about Trump and not enough showing. So the tone... So explain ends, that. Sure. I think the tone ends up being off, uh, oftentimes. I think that it is much more important for people to just... Because here's the thing. The damage of all of us saying he is going to lose and him winning on media credibility was very real. And mm-hmm. so at a certain point, if the, if the tone of coverage is all sort of endlessly shrill that every rea- everything he does is treated as if it's worthy of the same reaction, it's just not, I'm sorry. Like some of these tweets do not need to be treated like other tweets. I don't think we can ignore his tweets. I never understood that Well, they one. seem to be presidential pronouncements. They're presidential statements. Why right. would we not pay attention to what he says? Um, but it is, for the exhaustion factor, to take it back to what you were, you were asking, it is important to start kind of figuring out what the rhythms are. The problem, certainly at my paper, I think it's actually much less so at the Washington Post, is that... The people who covered the campaign were just fundamentally different than the people who covered the White House. And so the Washington Post has a lot more people in their White House bureau who cover, covered the campaign. Uh, if you did not cover the campaign, you were at a severe disadvantage because you, are lear- you're, you were for the first six months because you were learning how strange this all is. I mean, I remember um, my colleague then, Ashley Parker, who is now David's colleague, and I, she and I were the Trump, two main Trump reporters. We did a briefing for the D.C. Bureau right after uh, the election just to tell them what to prepare for. And people thought I was kidding based on a lot <laughs> of what What did I you said. say? Um, like, he cray. Like, what did you do? I, no, not like that. <laughs> no, no, really. They, you know, he cray. Well, like, he will, he will say, he will point to this table and say it's a sofa. And, and you'll be sort of wanting to tear your hair out because this is not a sofa, but you don't really know how to argue with someone saying that. And then you're um, discussing sofas. Th- right, and then you're just correct. Um, just sort of along those lines, um, how people in the campaign thought that their offices were bugged, uh, how you should always assume that your conversations are being taped, how um, you have to be careful what you say to him because he will take something you say and he will toss it back out publicly with a whole new patina where it's not quite what you said. And th- so we've seen this for two years where he'll be like, this person came to me and asked for my support. And I'll be like, that's not really what happened, but there's enough of a, jur- a, 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 a kernel of truth that the person then en- ends up in this like weird you know, spider web of unable to get out of what he painted it as. Um, and I think that for people who didn't witness that firsthand uh, and didn't just have a sense of who was trustworthy on the campaign or who was more, more trustworthy than others. The one thing I will say that was unique about this campaign and that has been unique about this White House is I have never been lied to so frequently. Um, yeah. And I mean, and I have covered some 
uh, very difficult politicians. Um, <laughs> wow, well, come but, over and cover Uber with this me. Is, <laughs> similar this is but this situation. Is, <laughs> Not now. The news this, is right. Now. It's all changed. But yeah. this is a so that the that is where I think a lot of the exhaustion comes in. Is you you there is I think the word gaslighting has been rather overused. But I do think there is a degree to which you spend so much time trying to make sure that the ground beneath you is actually solid, um, that that is exhausting. All right. So getting to gaslighting, what is your, I want to know what each of your relationship, do you have a strong relationship with Trump or not at all? Uh, no, I, have, I haven't talked to him since May of last year when he called me a nasty guy. Um, <laughs> and he uh, told my editor at that point that he wasn't going to talk to me again. I've tried to talk to him a number of times since then, um, but no. How so? Just reaching out? I mean, or? yeah, for every story, you know, we would... You know, on charities, on, on Trump organization, we would reach out to him. And occasionally, you get some sort of spokesman to call you back, but I never got him again. He, and there was a time, obviously, before when he was really, really easy to get on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, 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 one of the interesting things for me was to learning, talking about like learning to deal with that, their press right. operation. There was one incident last year where I was writing a, I wrote a story about Trump's charitable giving, and uh, I, I sent them a bunch of questions, the Trump campaign, a bunch of questions about it, and they didn't respond at all. The story comes out, it says that they didn't respond to these queries. They then took the answers that they should have given to me that I had asked for and gave them to CNN. So CNN could have me on and sort of zats me with it and say, like, we found some problems with your story. The Trump campaign gave us this information. So what I started doing after that was posting all my questions on Twitter. Like, you know, here are the questions I asked. Because, just because I think readers, when they see you say, yeah. the Trump campaign did not decline. It looks like you didn't do your job. Yeah. yeah they, they think that when, they, when you say, like, oh, well, they didn't comment, that they imagine a scene out of like the movies where they're like hauling the, you know, the, pre- the president by and you're like, do you have any comment? And they just mm-hmm. don't say anything. But no, you sent them like a long, you gave them like lots of yeah. ways to answer these questions. So that's been part of my response to that. They didn't do it to me again after that. Um, after you put it on Twitter. Important. After I started showing on Twitter, like this is, this is what I asked for, they didn't respond. Right. Um, I want to get to using that and, and also where the media is next, but what is your relationship with him? I suspect you talk to him a lot. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say whether I do or don't, but I don't. But I think that um, the idea that somebody has a relationship with him, I just think it's like a flawed premise. Nobody okay. has relationships with him. I mean, he's everybody is disposable for him for the most part, with like literally maybe three exceptions. And so, and I don't mean in the media. I mean like in his life. Um, so I'm not talking about a relationship. You go out to dinner and no, no, no. I know what you mean, but I mean, but what I mean is that like even these things of sort of like when do the he. He speaks to people for when they're useful to him. I have had a, I've had a very, very up and down relationship with him um, over several years. Uh, but a lot of it is, it's, it's, he's obsessed with the New York Times. Yeah. Like, it's really hard for me to... So I'm just curious that. about that because he insults um, you at the same time that I, it, it feels like he must be talking to you just from my reading of your stories. I don't want to get into You don't have to say to, if you but, are. Um, but, he, but what I will say is that he's... He's like laser focused on the Times approval um, because the Times is, you know, New York elite and it's the elite that looked down on him and his father in his mind um, when they were outer borough builders. And uh, it's a stamp of approval. I mean, to David's point about sort of the, the Bruce Wayne narrative that Trump tried to craft for himself. I kept thinking about this, and I'm, 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 I am totally avoiding answering your question. Yes, just I in see case that. you're not clear. Don't worry, I'll um, ask again. In but a one second. of the, <laughs> one of the, but one of the things that I was thinking about um, that you said that was really interesting was about the whole like the way you get accepted in society is you know give money to charity, and that's definitely true in New York. And there were times when he did do that. He made donations to the gay men's health crisis um, in uh, the 80s because that was socially acceptable, and that was seen as the socially good thing to do. But it's when you were talking, I kept thinking about this story about Mike Bloomberg from 2001 when he was running for mayor, and it was in the Times, and it was one of the best stories I have ever read about him, written in like May of 01 or something. And the lead was Mike Bloomberg showing up at a party in, I think, the late 80s or 90s, and seeing the invitation list. And remember, Mike Bloomberg is from Boston. And he sees the you know, names hosted by you know, Ron Lauder and this one and that one. And he turned to whoever he was with, and he said, how do I get my name on this? And that's how he became a huge philanthropist. But there's two ways to do that. You can actually give your money if you have money to give. And then there's Trump, who has not really given of his money and of whom there have been huge questions about how much money he actually has. Right. Um, and anyway, so that's the... But, because of that, because of how New Yorkers have been written about in the Times, in part, that is part of his sort of obsession with the paper with and you. wanting it. To, his first, his first big interview was after he won was with us. He came and he came to our offices. We didn't go to him. Right, but you have 
very good sources, and I'm, I'm guessing he's one of them. You, have, you maintain good sources at the same time that they hate you. I don't talk about sourcing. Mm-hmm. They, All right, they okay. do hate me, though. They do? <laughs> to but, be clear. But like, one example like of the, the way that he, you know, in public excoriates the media and in private craves their approval was, right. remember like four health care bills ago yeah. when the House <laughs> pulled its health care bill That's dramatically. You know, yeah. Trump at that point was really into the, you know, <laughs> yeah. I hate the media, yes. I hate the media, the media's terrible. Who did he call? He called Costa and you, yes. right? To tell right. you yeah. Trump had a piece of news that people to, didn't know, which was that they, the House was going to pull its health care bill. And the two people he told were the Washington Post and the New York Times. To be clear, I had asked earlier in the day, and I'm pretty sure Bob did too, um, if we could talk to him. It wasn't right. as if we were on speed dial. However, he did so return the let's call. Let's finish up talking about that concept of, uh, we haven't gotten to Hillary yet, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> she wrote a whole book about it. And, uh, Wait, you can read her book. Yeah, you can read the book. It's actually a terrific book. Um, it's angry, which I like. It's an angry book, which is always a good book as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Let's talk about the attacks on the media. Do you think it, ma- I mean, obviously as a media person you have to go, of course it matters, but is it more of, what does it feel like right now? Because now it seems to work among the base, because he did it, did he do it last night again? Or, or did uh, actually, he no, just no, no. attack I think he John a, McCain? I think, he, I think he did NFL. He did NFL John McCain and... Yeah someone else yeah. i don't know does it does it work do you think it's effective or, or does it make you scared or because i know there's a lot there is a lot of pearl clutching in the media like i can't believe he said that I, at one point there was a there was a whole bunch of reporters i was in in washington and they were talking about this and they kept saying i can't believe he said that i can't believe he said that and i was like for fuck's sake he says it all the time right. believe it like stop like it, you know this sort of being indignant and angry and self-righteous seems to get Nobody anywhere, essentially. I know it's kind of terrible. It's sort of the um, in 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 broadcast news, um, which like if people have not seen it, best you should movie watch ever. It. Holds up, holds up so well. The best journalism movie that I've ever seen from the 1980s. And there's a, a scene where one of the uh, one of the new anchors, the pretty boy anchor, uh, has filmed an inter- he's 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 you know, confronting a military general, and he keeps in the clip of him confronting the guy. And Joan Cusack says, I love that you left that in. And Albert Brooks says, yes, yes, let's never forget. We're the real story, not them. (laughs) And so some of the, you know, oh, my God, he's just being so harsh on the media. Like, nobody nobody gives a shit about the media being uh, treated poorly. And I think that, you know... Is our rating less than Congress in public approvals now? It's a pretty close. I don't know. So, Lower than Congress is hard to do. I it mean, is. Just nine. mathematically. Maybe, but I mean, I think it's not, it's not far. So <laughs> I think it works for his base. What I do think is that to David's point about the public screaming, you know, I hate the media, and then hello, mm-hmm. is yeah. that um, <clears throat> there are some of his supporters who aren't really in on the joke. Mm-hmm. And what worries me is, is two things. What worries me is people taking individual actions against reporters um, that are potentially dangerous because there have been an increase in threats, I think, made against people. The other thing that worries me is just there's this creeping crackdown on transparency. Uh, right. And the AP did this story the other day that was really important about, you know, state to state, you are seeing an effort to respond less to FOIA requests. Uh, you are seeing information provided less. We know that this administration has scrubbed websites. Um, has not answered FOIAs, uh, is not releasing White House visitors' logs, just, and, and I'm not even sure that they're holding on to the visitors' logs. That's what scares me more than right, anything. Right, the lack of transparency. Yeah. Which is, I think, ultimately what the screaming about the press hides to some extent. Right, the idea of that. And at the same time, it's hard to not do a better job. It's, see, I, I like it better when people aren't talking to me. I'm like, yay. No, it's better. You know, I, I look, look, it's like, I don't, we don't, right, this isn't about, we didn't, we don't need a hug. Like, that's right. not what we're in this business for. Um, well, a few but, people, but go ahead. Well, um, I don't... Some people need a hug. But I don't... I also think that, like, people constantly posting, you know, Instagram videos of themselves asking questions of, here's what I did in the briefing room. Like, I don't think that that helps any of us. I just don't. I, I feel like um, the sort of outrage... I mean, it's important. I think it's a bad thing that he's attacking the media and undermining our credibility. The response from us, to your point cannot be outrage. It cannot be that we make ourselves the story and the sort of, you know, right. I feel like the bashing the media, you know how like country music stars get like an extra 10 years on their life when they go to Branson? Like you're washed <laughs> up and you go to Branson, you can last another 10 years. Right. Uh, that's what bashing the media does, right? When you run out of everything. David Clark from uh, the Milwaukee Sheriff, people died in his jail. The rest of the county's turned against him. He loses his job. What does he have left? Bashing the media. And I don't want, you know, you can, you can live for a long time as a conservative uh, activist on that base anger by stoking anger at the media. Right. And 
that's bad also, but by us being yeah. outraged and take, taking ourselves out of the job that we do to become right. spokespeople yeah. and activists, I think that only helps it and incentivizes people to continue doing it. I see. So agree. bashing the media is Branson. Or maybe Vegas really for comedians, you Vegas know, like me. Carrot Top. As an, you know, it just yeah. it extends your career for a long time <laughs> right. after you've ceased to produce anything useful. I, right. I do think that's an insult to Branson, <laughs> and I like Branson. But, I like Branson, um, too. I like Branson. Yeah. <laughs> We're listening to my September 2017 interview with Maggie Haberman and David Farenhold. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back soon. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, I'm going to finish up. I'm going to get some questions in the audience. We have a mic here, and I really wish you would ask questions. These are really the top reporters covering President Trump. Where are we right now? Healthcare, look, where are we right now? Because it seems like, like someone, I think Lauren DeLuca in, in Twitter wrote, it feels like years in a week. It, it does, but you know something, and I, I said this before, and then I didn't follow up on it because I was too busy avoiding one of your other questions, but the, the, it, things have actually slowed down a little bit because there's only so long you can sustain this kind of um, you know, light with no actual productivity. Uh, healthcare, I, I don't see how it happens. I think McCain dealt it uh, an almost certain death blow. Uh, I think McCain has decided that he wants to go out his own way um, from uh, his career in the Senate. So that then puts the focus on tax reform, which is what Trump was telling people back when the first bill got pulled that he wished he had done. And so uh, I think that is likelier to pass because I think there's more incentive to pass it, but not if it's going to be passed with some of the provisos that they're talking about right now, which is like taxing people's 401ks. I mean, just, there's all sorts of things that will make for members of Congress um, in, in certain districts, it's going to make this like a guaranteed loser. If they vote for this, they might as well say goodbye. Um, if you don't see tax reform passed, then I think that you are going to see an increased number of um, congressional retirements and a, a lot more criticism from Republicans of Trump. Of Trump, not more criticism. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I just think that... They keep saying that and then don't. But, and no, then the they, investigation? There have been a few. Uh, I think the investigations, um, they're not moving... Um, they're not moving together, but they're moving on parallel tracks, and Mueller's office is in pretty close contact with the congressional investigators. Uh, and Mueller now has 17 people working for him. He's, he's, and? and they've got a grand jury. I mean, look, I, they've told, uh, we reported that they told Paul Manafort he's going to be indicted. Now, does that mean he's going to be indicted related to something to the campaign? I have no idea. That actually is not my sense yet. Um, but these, these special counsel investigations that are open-ended, uh, as the Clintons know very well, are, are very fraught. Um, and if anyone has finances that I think are, um, uh, they would not like having somebody poking through, it is Donald Trump. Yeah. I think punting, Trump has sort of devolved so much of the actual governing to Congress. I think yes. that's why it's slowed down, because Congress is, even a, a scared, paranoid, trying to ram through at the last minute before a deadline, Congress is slow, because there's so many people that's involved. Right. It's, so I think that's been part of the slowdown, is that Trump himself seems to have surrendered so much of the decision-making authority to Congress. And the investigation? And the investigation, I mean, I'm a complete bystander to that. I, I sit near the people that report on it, and I read about it a lot. It seems like it's picking up steam. I mean, Maggie's right that like, what Mueller, by firing Comey, he, he gave Mueller a license to look at everything Donald Trump Correct. had done since birth. Uh, and Correct. that is what Donald Trump has spent his entire life and some of his charitable donations trying to avoid. I mean, a lot of the big donations he gave uh, from his foundation were to the Police Athletic League of New York City, which was the pet charity of the DA. Yes. Uh, so he spent a lot of time trying to avoid people looking into his, uh, into his personal finances and Without, because he didn't think God has, has now brought that on himself. Well, yeah, and, and, and to your point, I mean, so much, of, so much of all of this stuff with him is self-inflicted. It is always reverse engineering some other thing. And so he, he has gotten himself into a bind, and it is, you know, in the, in the world of Donald Trump, nothing is ever Donald Trump's fault, so it has to be everybody else's fault. Um, but I, I don't think this is going to uh, end happily for some people. How broad that will be, I don't know. Whether there's actually evidence of him having knowledge about Russia, I don't know. Yeah. But 
Um, but he continues to act like somebody who is concerned, which is one of the things that perplexes people in the White House and his own, some of his own lawyers more than anything. Yeah, he does seem unconcerned. Questions from the audience? Um, Steve Amoson, thank you so much for all the work you've done. A question from your lens, how do you interpret the rhetoric of Trump as it relates to North Korea. And the reason I yeah, ask I get North, is a lot of the other things, it could take a couple decades, but whatever he does will work out, but not a nuclear war. So from what you've observed over the last many years, how would you really interpret all of his rhetoric? It's an it's, excellent question. It's, Sorry, I forgot. It's it. a great question to which I don't have a great answer, um, unfortunately. I mean, the way I interpret it is that when he came into office, this was the one issue that... Uh, Obama had told him that he was the most worried about, um, and I think Trump has remained the most worried about it since then. I think it has just kind of lodged in his brain um, in a certain way, and he knows he has no good options. Uh, his advisors have asked him to stop saying things like Rocket Man, um, which Trump amuses himself with, um, but which don't really have much uh, effect. He and Kim Jong-un are, are well-matched on insults, but they're not well-matched on strategy and sort of understanding of each other's own chess game. Um, I don't have a good answer in terms of where this goes. I think that uh, my understanding from some of my colleagues is that H.R. McMaster has actually uh, been more vocal about being aggressive with North Korea than I had anticipated because I had thought he would be among those who would be, just based on his history, uh, the more stepped back. Um, but you have a bunch of people basically in the White House who are trying to execute a pretty careful dance with somebody who likes to just say what's on his mind and likes to sound very Has tough. that changed since Bannon left? Because Bannon was against that, those encounters, correct? Um, yes, but <clears throat> I don't think it's changed. I mean, I think that this was always a, a tension point between the two do, of them. Do you miss Steve Bannon? <laughs> um, he's a, a very, very entertaining figure um, in certain respects. Wow, entertaining. Uh, the, That's not uh, a word I'd pick for the, I'm, 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 yeah. Uh, I think that, look, I think that the White House, ca I think that by the end there was a pretty broad feeling that he was a huge source of problems within the White House, that um, John Kelly had made clear to him pretty early on, you will not be a survivor on this island and you're gonna have to figure out a way to go um, because you are a source of, a source of enormous trouble. Um, one of the ironies about Bannon for me, and I've thought about this a lot in the last couple of days, you know, Trump was sort of um, enabled by um, the Republican Party in 2011 and 12, Mitt Romney sought his endorsement. Um, Reince Priebus thought he was, wrongly thought he was a major donor, which is why <laughs> Reince Priebus kept going out. I mean, I will never forget um, one of Reince Priebus's people saying to me in 2011 when I said, why is Reince not speaking out harder about the birther stuff? This person said, you don't understand, Trump is gonna do a major fundraiser. And I said, yeah, I, you're right, I don't understand <laughs> that. Um, but um, that is true. So, but Trump basically was like mainstreamed that way. I mean, he was this total fringe person at that point who was screaming about the birther stuff, which Andrew Breitbart, the person whose website, the, the website's named for Andrew Breitbart, he rejected Trump very, very forcefully in 2011, rejected the birther stuff. Uh, so this is not what conservatism, mm -hmm. uh, conservatism is. And uh, Trump got mainstreamed and then the party kind of couldn't get rid of him, even though they sort of wanted to in 2016. Trump mainstreamed Steve Bannon. I mean, Steve Bannon was sort of on this fringe with Breitbart, and he brought him into the White House. And so the idea that the White House now feels like they're going to say, don't listen to Bannon, you made him your chief strategist. What did you think was going to happen? Right. Anyway. Fair point. One more quick question. Just right here. Hi. Uh, thank you all for being here this morning. It's been a great discussion so far. My question is, in consideration of the sort of command that Trump has over the news cycle, if y'all had, if we could fantasize about a time where y'all had the resources and time to focus on another person or another situation, what would y'all be interested in covering? Such a good question. Yeah. What would you cover, David? Uh, you mean within politics or anything? Within, I mean, I think within politics, we are shifting slowly to cover uh, people in Congress. And I think Mitch McConnell is the most fascinating figure. Someone who is like, there was a, Ali McGillis, this person who used to work at the Post, wrote a book about him called The Cynic, right? Mc, Mitch Mc, McConnell. Mitch McConnell had been so cynical about using, stoking the sort of Fox News conspiracy theory right to, to lift his people into power and thinking that he could then control it. It's like once we get the power, 
we don't really want to do all that crazy stuff that these people want us to do. We'll then you know, be able to enact tax reform and you know, do sort of more mainstream conservative things. And now he created the monster and it's eating him now. And so McConnell, as cynical as he thought he was, he was wrong. He was idealistic in some ways. And to watch his vision for what this Congress could do with Trump as president completely disappear and to think about what his future is, I think he's a really fascinating figure and would like to read. I mean, he's the opposite of Trump personality-wise and so it's sort of hard to write about, but his view of American politics and his own place in it has been completely upended in the last few months. God, I never imagined the word fascinating and Mitch McConnell in the same (laughs) sentence, but go ahead. Where would you cover? Tourism in Hawaii? What? Yeah, I'd like to go cover science, honestly. Like, I'd like to go, I'd like to go do some entirely different beat. Entirely different beat. I used to cover the environment and it does have the advantage of the fact that when you call people up and ask them questions, their first instinct is not to lie to you. Oh, nice. They'll tell you about their algae or their cougar or whatever, right? I love this. You know, they're happy to tell you what happened to them. You don't have to, like, get through those seven layers of lies first. Let me amend my answer. Actually, if I could go cover anything right now, I'd actually like to go cover New York City's uh, political system again because uh, that's where I started and... It's just fundamentally broken. And, it is. It is. Um, it's it's a real, and it's also fundam- fascinating. Too. Yeah, it is. And so that's if I if I had my druthers, my my dream job was chief New York correspondent for the Times forever, um, and it kind of passed me by. But uh, but that's I'm guessing you could still get it. it, 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 it well, mm-hmm. but it's that's what uh, that's that would be my dream. All right, last question I have. I'm really sorry. We don't have not more time. We've got to finish. You're on the Twitter a lot, and we were just talking earlier. You really you really do come so close to that line. Together. And you use it for work. You're not quite as fun on Twitter, but it's good. It's how you use it. But you are very funny, and you come very close. I go way over the line all the time, and I come back, and <laughs> I go over. Um, and Glenn just left Twitter. Glenn Thrush, your, your reporting partner. Why did he leave? Um, I, know, I think I know why, because he was getting emotional. There was a lot of what the fucks in I there. Think there were, I think there were... Hey, on, on the part of the readers or on his part? No, um, in the tweets, you can feel the what the fuck. Yeah, I think, um, I think that there were a couple of... Um, the, I think the, Twitter, the risk of Twitter is that we all sound like we're screaming at the television. Um, and I think part of the problem with covering this presidency is that uh, we spend a lot of time talking about why can't Trump control himself on Twitter. <laughs> um, and so that I know that when I can't control myself on Twitter, it's not a great look. Um, I think that... Uh, I think that Glenn found it was mostly, a t- honestly, it was a time suck. And mm-hmm. it was not, it's not, the way David uses it is great. And I used to use it that way. And I still do sometimes. Like, th- that is still how I get sources. Sources will DM me. Um, people will see something I, I wrote or posted and they'll try to reach me that way. So for that, it's inherently useful. For sharing reporting that I can't get into the paper, it's incredibly useful. Everything else, eh. So, I mean, I think that Glenn is, um, I think Glenn uh, chose... Um, mental clarity over uh, playing the anger video game, which is what Twitter is. And not you? Well, we don't have to do everything the same. Um, (laughs) Look, I still find Twitter useful. I think that it it is a good platform for pushing out work. It's just that I used to do things like engage in these like idiotic fights, which is a terrible look for reporters. And and then I'd be fighting with like an egg with 27 followers. I'm like, right. what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Um, like I was like fighting with someone once and somebody DM'd me and said, I'm, that is literally a bot that you're fighting with. <laughs> it's like, oh. Um, so, you could have called me. I would have told you. I should have asked you. Yeah. If, only, hey. if only we had done this a long time ago. Yeah. But, um, Stick with Scaramucci. Yeah, ex- exactly. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, I, still think that it's, I still think it's useful. I don't think it's as useful as I used to. Yeah, is. I just had a fight with Scaramucci. I enjoyed it completely, so I have a different point of view. It's just, <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm yeah, just going to watch you amusing, and not do my own. It was fun. I, we yeah. both, I think, enjoyed it, and it was great. Um, very last question I know that we have to absolutely go is, so are you optimistic or pessimistic about the state of the world right now? David, you first. As I said, I'm naturally an optimist. I do feel like domestically the worst sort of fears of what the Trump administration would bring in terms of damage to democracy and sort of gathering of power in one place have not come true. Um, mostly, I can't tell you like, what the intent behind this was, but mostly through incompetence on the Trump people's parts, the fact that they, they began their administration not with things like infrastructure Correct. or tax reform, which Democrats would have been scared to oppose them on, but with a Muslim travel ban, 15 different versions of healthcare that were unpopular. And the smack doing, at transgender people. Yeah, all these things that have shrunk. You know, he could have, I think, he had, I think he had a moment on January 20th where the Democrats were afraid of him, the Republicans were afraid of him, people were willing to give him a chance. He could have had an enormous amount of power, uh, and he doesn't because 
legacy of the way he's used the power that he has. And it sometimes he still seems to be treating the president, like acting like he's a guy at home yelling at the TV instead of a guy who's in charge of the country. Um, so I'm optimistic dom- domestically. I think that like, the, the, the sort of guardrails of democracy have held. The press has gotten stronger, figuring out how to cover Trump. The, you know, North Korea is the one thing I don't, I don't know how to value. I don't know whether to be optimistic or pessimistic about that. I mostly just choose to ignore it. Yeah. Okay. My concern is, uh, um, I agree with everything David said, although I think that there is a difference between how he has used political capital versus actual power. And I think that just the, pa- the actual power a president can amass in this country is actually pretty limited, um, which was sort of an original intent. Um, my concern is that there is going to be some kind of an unforeseen event or a known unknown like a terror attack. Uh, and how he responds to that, um, given his devotion to trying to keep some form of a travel ban in place, um, given uh, how DHS has been incredibly aggressive about deportations, things like that, that I am concerned about domestically. Obviously, I'm concerned about North Korea, but, you know, who isn't? <laughs> All right. David Farenhold of The Washington Post, Maggie Haberman of The New York Times, thank you so much for coming thank on Decode Decode. Thanks again to Maggie Haberman and David Farenhold for coming on Recode Decode and to the Texas Tribune Festival for hosting us. Thank you for listening. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Erica Anderson at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Don't forget to subscribe to Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway for fresh conversations about tech, business, and more every week. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. We'll be back here with another Best of Recode Decode episode on Wednesday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO meets so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com. Hold up. 